Kristen. William. What is your history with dogma? I've seen it 8,000 times. Hello, welcome to Guide to the Unknown. I'm Kristen. And I'm her little brother, William. And this week, it's hard to describe in a pithy way what we're doing. I, I know exactly what we're doing because I had the same thought. Okay. We are covering two religious-themed stories yeah. centering around an, a thousand-year-old legend of the last scion. Uh-huh. Not only are we covering this legend of the last scion, each of our movies comes with a variety of religious horror iconography within them. So we're covering like Catholic horror around the concept of the last scion. This is loosely similar to how we talked about the Indiana Jones MacGuffins. Right. I mean, the reason we're even doing this is because it came up when Will and I were trying to figure out how to approach Indiana Jones because we wanted to do an episode, but there are four movies currently and we knew we couldn't pack all those in. So we were wondering rather than tackling a movie each, if there was a theme that we would tackle. And when we talked about like the Holy Grail or whatever, it reminded me of the Da Vinci Code. And I was like, oh man, let's do the Da Vinci Code. And then this happened. But the Da Vinci Code, to my recollection, and you will correct me, Mm -hmm. uh, perhaps, I understood it to be that there is somebody who is chasing after the or or trying to learn the truth of this concept of the last scion. No. No? The Holy Grail. Oh, it is the Holy Grail. Yes. Yeah. Oh. But the last scion does end up playing into it, like in the last second. Oh, really? Basically. Oh, okay. Uh But no, the Holy Grail. It's the Holy Grail. Okay. So Tom... Hanks is going mm-hmm. after the Holy Grail. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's he's roped into this stuff. He's just a symbologist who's in Paris doing a lecture. And all of a sudden, he's mixed up in mayhem, right. traveling by jet all over the world. Okay. And that's what, they're, they're, what we're doing then are modern religious adventure stories. Yes, yeah. I think so. So Tom Hanks in The Da Vinci Code is our Indiana Jones stand-in. Yeah. Indiana Jones is a paleontologist. He's an educator, a professor, a learned man. Yes. But then he goes on these globe-trotting adventures where he has to get really physical. Yes, exactly that. He's not getting physical, Robert Langdon. Robert Langdon, Tom Hanks does not get physical? No. I mean, he, he runs maybe at some point. He gets kind a good... Like so a, a run scoot. Okay. But no, he's he's not fighting anybody really. Okay. Um. Yeah. No, but he is traveling. He is moving, which is a physical act. That is a physical act. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is this all right? I, well, I'm curious to hear about it. I saw this when it first came out. Same. What's your What's your history with the Da Vinci Code? So the Da Vinci Code book came out into. I'm really going to be talking about the movie, by the way. I didn't yeah. read the whole book for this show. Um, the Da Vinci Code book came out in 2003. Uh-huh. It was written by Dan Brown, and it took the world by storm. You uh-huh. You kind of can't overemphasize what a hit this book was. Yes. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for like years. Mm-hmm. It just never went away. And so I read it when it came out and like, I loved it. I thought it was great. I book. remember you reading this and I remember yeah. you reading the sequel, Angels and Demons. Yeah, I don't really remember that, but I did. I know I did read it. And Actually, that's not the sequel. I'm sorry. Angels and Demons is actually first. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, it's like a some... Red Dragon situation. Yeah, this became the hit, The Da Vinci Code, but ah. Angels and Demons is the first book of the, I believe, five-book Robert Langdon series. Oh, wow. So it's almost exactly like Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, yep. Silence of the Lambs, the movie, really hit. Yeah. And then they 
people started to recontextualize Red Dragon yep. in that style. The book, and then they made the movie. Yes. Yeah. And that movie slapped. But I, I don't think that Angels and Demons slaps. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't, don't know, know either. Maybe, maybe, I don't know if I've seen that. Maybe we'll cover more Robert Langdon uh, adventures. Who's to say? I don't know. I mean, you made me not watch this, and I sort well, of wanted to. No, I mean, I also don't like for you to watch know, what I'm covering anyway, so that I can just tell you about I it. I, and... have, I have very flimsy recollection. Yeah. Can I tell you my history with the Da Vinci Code? Sure. The year? Probably somewhere around 2005 or something. Yeah. And I knew that people loved this book. I don't think I realized that it had been, had only just come out a couple years prior. Yeah. This book spread like a weed. It was the, huge. Everybody had a copy of the Da Vinci Code. Mm -hmm. It was like when everybody had a copy of Titanic on VHS, that double VHS. It was like when everybody, like what I can kind of compare it to, even though it's obviously not the same subject matter whatsoever, was that like it seemed like, well, maybe not. I was going to say like Fifty Shades of Grey because it seemed like everybody had a copy of that at one point yeah. in the salon. I don't think as many men had copies of that. This is probably pretty unisex in appeal. This hit every quadrant yes. of, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, this this seemed like everybody had this book and revered it and loved it in a way that to me screamed like, oh, this has probably been around for 20 years. Right, right. So I picked it up finally to be like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this. And I made a rookie mistake. And this is on me. Mm -hmm. I can't really fault anybody else for having made this decision. I picked up The Da Vinci Code, the illustrated edition. Yes. I remember we had that at home. It was like a coffee table book. Yep. This thing was huge. Yes. And I opened it and like the first 50 pages are Dan Brown being <laughs> like, here's what it was like for me to write The Da Vinci Code and my travels. And and there's like- That's also like Thomas Harris. Like, have you ever listened to the audiobook of- Yeah, it's great. Um, he talks about is... the, the doctor who was the inspiration behind Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, exactly. So it's, they both kind of like addressed re-releases of their books with a little bit of their personal flair in the beginning. Which I'm all about. I love yeah. a commentary track, right? Yep. This is the book's version of a commentary track is the foreword or something. But- I, Thomas Harris talked about working with a doctor. I think his name was Dr. Salazar, mm -hmm. who was the inspiration for Hannibal Lecter. That is so hands-on and interesting. Yeah. All I remember is Dan Brown photographing a blue door <laughs> and then being like, uh, this is where I lived when I worked on this book and I knew that this door would be part of the story. This is where Robert Langdon would go. Robert Langdon would open this door. Man, do I love this goddamn door. Yeah. And I was like, screw this. I like slammed the book <laughs> shut. I was like, I can't read about this door anymore and I never went back. Yeah, yeah. And all I knew about the movie is that there was a scary guy who flagellates himself yes. with a cat of nine tails, which seemed yes. horrific and terrifying. It honestly is. And this movie... Must have come out, well, 2006, I see yep. on this poster behind us. So, like, this all happened in it's an It's a poster era. that Will put on this this screen that we have where yeah. we can change what's there depending on the episode. Will doesn't have a poster right. of the da, da, da Vinci Code just in his basement. Not yet. Yeah. <laughs> but so this also, in the early 2000s, we were having some sort of a, like, Christianity, Catholicism... Pop culture renaissance. What else was? Passion of the Christ. Oh, yeah. 2004. Another like large scale epic. It was gory and brutal and like was like an adventure film. <laughs> I've never some. seen that. Have you? I, oh, I saw it. Yeah. Brutal. What that guy went through was a rough. <laughs> yeah. Seems like tough stuff. It was, it was a hard movie to watch. Yeah. So. I don't know what was going on in the, uh, what was in the water supply. Yeah. But like the time was right for. It's holy water. 
holy water was in the water supply. Mm-hmm. The time was right for Tom Hanks to uh, grow I guess, out his hair, yeah, and play Robert Langdon. That was also the big thing about this movie is that he has kind of like a shaggy hairdo that he doesn't usually have. And people oh, and are like, like no what is sideburns this? or something, right? Like, doesn't he look real? Oh, weird? I don't know. Maybe that's in the sequel. One of his hairdos <laughs> in this film franchise is bizarre. <laughs> it's funny to call it a hairdo, but it's, it is. It is. Yeah. It's his do. It's his hairdo. Yeah. Um. So, do you want me to tell you what it's about? Oh and my stuff? god! Yeah. Okay. I also know the reason why I'm talking about dogma mm-hmm. is that there's... Right, a, we didn't even say Will is going to talk about dogma. I'll be talking about dogma later in the episode. Kevin Smith ate this guy's lunch. Like, <laughs> what do you mean? Like four years ahead of time, Kevin Smith dabbled in these events. I mean, I think he did fine. A lot of people... There were lawsuits around the Da Vinci Code saying mm-hmm. that he, Dan Brown, plagiarized other people's work. Oh, really? I'll get into that a little bit. And one of the under-discussed things is that and maybe I misunderstood because I did not watch the movie for this episode, is that a plot element of the Da Vinci Code was done by Kevin Smith uh-huh. a few years earlier. And people oh. are sort of like, what's going on here? Did he steal this element from oh. a Kevin Smith movie? Hmm. We'll Interesting. We'll I mean, that. yeah, it is kind of a similar thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I so I really liked the book, but I read it like right when it came out. And I saw the movie in theaters. I know I did not like it, but still, I thought that this would be fun for an episode because I was like, it's all about like mystery and secret messages and hidden codes and ciphers. Love like it. we both love that kind of stuff. Yes. And, um, you know, I didn't enjoy it. It was not good. <laughs> I I thought because I have in recent-ish years, like, come to really love National Treasure. I think that's such a fun movie. Ugh. And that I, I think that I like action for nerds, Brutal. where it's, like, somebody running around and, like, doing action stuff, but it's about, like, the Constitution or about historical records or whatever. We have to find the Admiral's logbook. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I thought it would be kind of, you know, have those sorts of vibes and be enjoyable, but I found that to be wrong. Right. And I almost wish that I you know, could have some sort of magic over time and I could have just reread it or listened to it or something instead, but that's not possible. That bad? Yeah, I thought it was really bad. It's like (laughs) two hours and 45 minutes long or something. Ooh, that's long. I felt every single minute. I thought it was really bad. That is a long period of time. I broke it up. I watched it in an hour and a half and an hour and a half. Okay. It is, I didn't like it. So here is, and also it seems like most people didn't like it. Um, There were sequels. I mean, they did make sequels. So it obviously made enough It's a trilogy. It is a trilogy. But it was critically derided. Was it? Yeah. And, um, yeah, I mean, not horribly. I think it was kind of like a middling sort of thing. It wasn't like this movie is total trash, but it was like, this is not a successful yeah. adaptation. Um, in some ways, if I remember right, I think that people felt like it was almost a little bit too faithful to it. Like, just it, everything's just so long and so drawn out. Um, and Ron Howard directed it, mm-hmm. and he's a great director, and all the ingredients are, are good. It was, I think, a good book, or at least Kristen from 2003 thought it was a good book. Ron Howard is good. Tom Hanks is good. Andre Tutau or Tutau or whatever you say it is semi fresh off of Amelie. People love Amelie. I, I'm not familiar. Well, people love it. Okay. She had little teeny bangs and a little bob, and she was like all cute. Oh, I can it's picture like French... the cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but I don't know. It was it was not for me. So it is so complicated this movie and hard to condense the plot, but. I did my best. So here is what the deal is. It starts in the Louvre where a monk with 
albinism named Silas, played by Paul Bettany of those famous Johnny Depp texts. Do you know what I'm talking about? No. Okay. During Wait, yes, I do. That was to Paul Bettany. Yes, who plays Vision in the Marvel movies. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like Johnny Depp texted like a ton of like really like violent messed up stuff about Amber Heard and it was like all using court and that was like to his buddy Paul Bettany. Like about her corpse. Yeah, and yeah. doing stuff to it. Yeah. Uh so that's him. I I like can't not think of that now. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> I've thought about that now. It wasn't that long ago, but oh my God. I know. Uh, so yeah, so he is playing a monk named Silas and he's chasing a curator named Sonye through the Louvre. <laughs> I know. I'm going to say Sonye so much. They say Sonye so much. Okay. Uh, they're, they're cha- he's chasing him through the Louvre, demanding the Priory Keystone to the Holy Grail because Silas wants to destroy the Keystone. Sonye or Sonier? Maybe it's Sonier. Whatever. Hmm. Sonia, I'm trying to think of them saying it. Wait, I don't care. Oh, perfect. <laughs> I think they might say Sonier. Sonier gives him a false lead and Silas kills him. Oh. Sonier's body is later found stripped naked and posed like the Vitruvian man. <gasps> the, oh, wow. The, ma- the, the man yes. in the wheel. Yes, the Leonardo da Vinci man who's like Arms a Kimbo. Yes. And he was used for drawing people or something? So wait a minute, you can't pose somebody like the vitruvian man because the vitruvian man has like four arms and four legs well i mean that's pose just, like arms just out. The, the central person that's just arms out to your side and legs down and naked that's almost normal <laughs> i <laughs> naked though and i guess if you're in the louvre where there's like da vinci stuff maybe you're more willing to make that leap but will i think that you're thinking that silas posed him this way yeah because which silas i thought too yeah silas did kill him he ultimately he ultimately died of his wounds yes the albino monk who was chasing him did kill him but didn't pose him no okay saunier posed himself shut up (laughs) shut up it's that kind of movie all right shut up he this was a clue to send robert langdon on the very quest his granddaughter shut up (laughs) just get the his granddaughter get that shit out of here this is where it's like (laughs) nakey Like, there was no other... I better take my pants and underwear off. Was there no (laughs) other way? Because his granddaughter is, like, the cryptologist for, like, the French police or something. So he he writes, like, you know, like, clues and codes all around himself. Obviously, his granddaughter, Audrey Tutau, is (laughs) going to get called. So he strips himself naked on the floor. She's going to see his Tutau. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Take take some of that time, all that posing and nudie time. Yes. Where you're where you're pulling your trousers down. While you're like bleeding out. Take some of that time and make it less cryptic and operatic and disgusting. Just write what they need to know. Because he does write stuff around his body. Write whatever you want this to communicate. Come on, dude. I know. Tighten it up. Uh so Robert Langdon is at a a conference or whatever giving a lecture talking about symbols. And he gets a phone call from the French police asking him to come to examine the body, which what? He's just a symbologist. Um, and to help with the symbols around it. Yeah. Because there are these symbols that are only visible in black light all around the body. This and like, so I know, like, why did he have a black light marker handy or whatever was going on? By the way, I just have to mention, like I said, this is very complicated. There very well could be answers to these questions that I'm posing that I missed. In the movie? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, well, there better not be, Chris. I should hope not, but <laughs> there's no way of telling. 
<laughs> so but, wait, just to be clear, just to be clear. Yeah. There could be justifications for these things that I'm flipping out about. I have to wonder. That are reasonable justifications. But well, definitely not Sonier posing himself as the Vitruvian To what man. degree were you paying attention to what you were No, watching? I was paying attention, okay. but it was boring. Yeah. So, you know, my eyes were like... I wasn't walking around Did or anything. Did it feel anything. like you were at school? Yeah. Doesn't this feel like the kind of movie that somebody might play at school? Because there's some tenuous, tenuous way to connect it to education. The most tenuous of ways. I'm not sure they would just because of how long it is. Yeah, but then you can get away with this for like a week. Yeah, I guess that's right? true. Yeah, I guess if you have like a substitute for a week or yeah. something. Um, no, I, I mean, I think I really have it right. But the, <laughs> some of the things are so ridiculous. I'm like, is it really that ridiculous or do I not remember? Like, why is what's written around him in black lighting? Was there a, a, an answer to this that I just don't remember? I'm not really sure. Because it's fun and cool. I, I mean, Kristen, I, I think it's, it's fun just, and cool. I think it's just that. I'm just saying I wouldn't be shocked. If we find out that yeah. there was a logical reason, I right, just missed right. it. But anyway, um, so, you know, Robert Langdon goes and he meets up with the police guy and excuse me, it's a cryptographer, Sophie, Sonier's granddaughter, um, that it is a Fibonacci sequence that is written around Sonier's body, but it's out of order. So that's so it's not the Fibonacci sequence. <laughs> I guess it's <laughs> the important thing about is a sequence. A sequence is that it's an order. I thought the same. But God whatever. Damn it. I don't know. This is so like, you're so right where it's like, this is so on trend for things that I should like. I know. It's like just a, a few degrees. But to it's the, like delivered in such a strangely dull way. And again, over such a long period of time. Like I said, in the book, I really enjoy this. And again, I know it was literally 20 years ago at this point. But movie version, I'm I was sorry. like. Once you're getting into the, to the idea that the dead man pulled his pants and underwear off. <laughs> I'm you've lost me you've Shut already up. lost me just write the words da Vinci There's because all no he was back. all he was communicating with this is think about da Vinci that's it pretty much I think it could be think about Fibonacci no but like da Vinci did the Vitruvian man I'm sure. saying I'm saying the nakedness thing and Vitruvian man thing is just think about da Vinci because then they go around the Louvre getting other clues from da Vinci paintings and stuff right okay so just write the words da Vinci next to your out of order Fibonacci sequence <sighs> Um, so at a certain point, Sophie whisks Robert Langdon away and removes a tracking device from him, saying that the police think that he killed Sonier because they didn't tell him or because they didn't tell him, but they found the words PS find Robert Langdon at the end of his mysterious message on the floor. She sneaks him away and they go around finding more clues in Da Vinci works. That doesn't sound quite as clever as the rest of what he had contrived. He just wrote no, PS. Yeah. PS find Robert he put Langdon. put a PS onto his convoluted. Fibonacci and his yeah. Nike. I know it's very weird. So Langdon deduces that Sonier was the grand master of the priory of Scion. Okay. Uh, so there is science, yes. but it's not really the whole thing. It's a, it's a secret society around this concept is my understanding. Yeah, it's yeah. exactly that. Um, it's a secret society into investigating Jesus's bloodline and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Just in case somebody doesn't know, the Holy Grail is the cup said to be used by Jesus at the Last Supper. And the idea that Jesus would have a bloodline at all is right, a pretty controversial is a yeah. pretty controversial statement because Jesus was theory, was in in the legend of it all mm -hmm. um a uh, part of a virgin birth, right? He had right. no father's father was God. Mm -hmm. And then he would end up being crucified having had no children of his own. Right. And so uh what the Dan Brown with the Da Vinci code is saying is that Jesus perhaps 
had children, mm-hmm. right? And then in in dogma, we'll get into that, is that there's another way for Jesus's bloodline to exist to today. Right. But that concept itself is fairly recent as of only the 80s, mm. where people starting to talk about the idea that Jesus's bloodline could continue to today. Yeah. And there was a whole lawsuit oh. against the Da Vinci Code oh, right, right. because of this book, The mm. Holy Blood and the Holy Grail, a 1982 book, yes, uh, which put forth the hypothesis that Jesus married Mary Magdalene, had one or more children. And that those children or their descendants emigrated to what uh, is now southern France. Um, And a secret society called the Priory of Sion uh, 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 sort of tracked this this bloodline and tried to make sure that they were in positions of power and stuff like that. Right, right. So that's the big controversy. But Dan Brown seems to have potentially, lawsuit says, Mm -hmm. and I think it was thrown out. Yeah. But was he cribbing from this 1982 book and the 1999 movie Dogma? Right. I'll make the case that, I don't know. I'm yeah. not, I don't think so. <laughs> Hard to say. Um, but that's not the only secret society in town, the Priory of Sion. Silas, that monk, is part of Opus Dei, which is a Catholic offshoot that seeks to spread Catholicism big time. So it's not really a secret society, actually, but they do things that feel secret society-esque because of, like you mentioned, he self-flagellates. Right. Um, he wears... Is it, is it as gnarly as I recall? It's pretty gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he strips, again, naked with these guys. A lot of naked. Strips naked, but you only see him from the back and starts like hitting himself on the back with a cat of nine tails. He also wears this thing that I forgot the name of, um, but he wears it around his thigh. It's like basically like a dog choke collar, except it has like spikes in it. Yeah, I remember this. So he'll like pull that tight to be like punishing himself and hurting himself and stuff. That is really crazy. It's pretty, it's pretty nuts. They show it a few times and it's like, it's pretty graphic and gross. I know that we've had this debate before and I'm not really trying to get into the whole Mishigas of it, mm-hmm. but that's horror. Somebody who's flagellating themselves and separating like skin from bone and, and, Causing himself to bleed by tightening a thing on their leg. Like, that is gruesome mm-hmm. gore, which is associated with horror. Yeah. And I do feel like a lot of people would watch this and say, oh, I can't watch horror. This is horrific. I know you don't have to do it. I, I'm not going I already to. know your position. Yeah. I'm just saying. But that's, to me, that feels like what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, so he is doing all this stuff, like going after Son Ye and all that stuff at the instruction of somebody who's known only as the teacher. So Langdon and Sophie go to her grandpa Sonier's safety de- Sonier, I guess, safety deposit box, which they were able to open with the numbers from the Fib- Fibonacci sequence that he left for them on the floor. And the bank owner, knowing that they must be getting something valuable, whisks them away to safety. He says, like, oh, the police are coming. I'll get you at the back door. It's a special feature we have for our oldest customers. But he actually just wants to steal the cryptex that they found inside the safety deposit box and murder them because he knows that it must be really valuable. So the cryptex is this neat thing where you have to spell a word in order to open it. That's like the combination. And to retrieve the delicate papyrus inside. If you open the cylinder by any other means, if you crack it, whatever, the vinegar chamber in there will spread all over and melt the papyrus. Oh, no. So you really have to know this code. Is there an oil chamber as well so I can have a yummy salad? Oh, there should be. Um, So now next they go to visit Sir Ian McKellen. Oh, really? Yes. Who is an expert on the Holy Grail named Sir Lee Teabing. 
And he says that the grail isn't actually a physical object, but Mary Magdalene, who was actually not a sex worker, but Jesus's wife, who was pregnant at the time of the crucifixion. The Priory of Sion was, was formed to protect the descendants, and Opus Dei is basically their opposite. They want to destroy the grail or any evidence of it being Mary Magdalene in order to preserve the Vatican's credibility and storyline that there is not a bloodline here. Okay. So part of what I uh, stumbled across is that saying that the Holy Grail is Mary Magdalene is that they're saying her uterus mm -hmm. is the Holy Grail specifically. Oh, okay. Like the Holy Grail. And we'll talk about that. We're going to do Indiana Jones again before the new movie comes out. And the Holy Grail is one of the big MacGuffins there. Mm -hmm. And in that, it's like literally a cup that you drink out yeah. of that bestows life. But I guess one of the real world potential beliefs about this is that Mary Magdalene's uterus is the Holy Grail because it would contain right. uh, uh, the future bloodline of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. But Oopie's Day yeah. doesn't want anyone to know about that. No, okay. exactly. So they're, they're Priory of Sion and Oopie's Day are in like a fight. Yeah. Uh, so they are talking about all this when Silas breaks into T-Bing's mansion. T-Bing kicks his ass using a crutch that he has. Oh. And the trio, along with Silas and T-Bing's butler named Remy, go on a private jet uh, to go to another place because they're basically going on a wild goose chase after this little clue that was in the safety deposit box with the cryptex. In London lies a knight, a pope interred. His labor's fruit, a holy wrath incurred. You seek the orb that ought to be on his tomb, or that ought be on his tomb. It speaks of rosy flesh and seated womb. Oh, ew. ew. Exactly. <laughs> Gross. So there's a whole, like, weird pushing. Grandpa pull. writing sick poems. I know. It's disgusting. Nude but it's less grandpa. disgusting than you would think. Oh, okay. But it is still disgusting. Yeah. It's a double entendre, so it's disgusting. Uh, anyway, there's like a whole weird thing where like the butler Remy is like, oh, actually, I was the teacher who was communicating with Silas and like whisked Silas off to... Wait, the evil teacher in charge of Yes, evil... of Opus Day. Of Opie's Day. Well, he's not really in charge of Opie's Day, but he's the one who's been giving Silas orders, he says. The butler... Right, but the... that turns out not to be... <laughs> God damn it. It's actually... Sir Ian McKellen was the teacher. Oh, no. Who was doing this because he's trying to get, he, he wants to follow Silas to the Holy Grail. Like, Holy Grail's, I mean, Silas is going to be trying to, like, destroy evidence. But in the process, he'll be like, oh, don't worry. I found it. It's at blah 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 And. Oh, so Ian McKellen does work for the Priory of Scion. He doesn't even work for them. He's just like an, he's just like obsessed an, with the Holy Grail. Okay, but he wants it. He's like it. crazy rich. He yeah. wants it. So mm -hmm. he manipulates Silas, who would want to destroy it. Right. Knowing that this guy is so, you know, fiendish for this. Right. He'll probably get to it. And then I can sweep in and take it to preserve it. Yes. Instead of him destroying it. Yes. Okay. This, exactly. is, this is complicated. Yeah. It's really complicated. So basically, Teabing is a bad guy and he also he wants to bring down the Catholic Church. First of all, he's just like obsessed with the grail, but he also wants to use it to like show that they're wrong or whatever. And uh yeah. So <laughs> he understands the riddle that I just read to you, and he takes them to the tomb of Sir Isaac Newton. Oh my god. A former Priory of Scion Grand Master and at gunpoint insists that Langdon and Sophie open the cryptex and give him what's inside. 
Why, why gunpoint? Why does he have to be? Because they, they don't like him now. He's like, because they found out that he's the teacher. He's in, he was behind Silas killing Sophie's grandpa. Okay. Like they're not cool now. So what does Robert Langdon want? Does he? No, he's just like along for the ride. They, he's they just, just sort of here. Yeah. And he is like a symbologist or whatever and historian. So he's interested. <laughs> is he just a captive? Kind of. Why is he our main character? He, he just has he just has like uh like an educational interest, an intellectual interest in this. I mean, I guess so did Indiana Jones, right? Like yeah, he, I he's, suppose. Uh, but he was trying to stop the Nazis. Yeah, no, he's just interested. Okay. Basically. So uh Langdon looks like he's kind of noodling over the cryptex for a second. He's gonna figure out this code on the fly because he's so good at this stuff, basically, and open it. And then whoa, he throws it up into the air. No. Sir Ian McKellen dives for it, but it breaks. But no papyrus is found inside. This is because Langdon opened it on the sneak I using the word apple. Which is obviously the orb that should be on Sir Isaac's tomb. Stop it. Stop it. Rosy flesh, seeded womb. Apple. Apple. I hate it. I hate it. No, but but also Mary it's, Magdalene or whatever. And it's totally fine, right? Like that's like a totally sufficient. It's totally so there's a whole rant just like that John Oliver simple. did about this. He yeah. like hates it. Yeah. It's so stupid. But it's on it was like a web exclusive. It's on YouTube. If you look up John Oliver Da Vinci Code. I will. Yeah, it's funny. Uh so so yeah, so he's able to open the cryptex with that code, Apple, and the papyrus inside. Uh, tells them that the grail can be found neath the rose, which takes them to their next location, Roslyn Chapel in Scotland. They find a secret room below where Mary Magdalene's body once lay and a bunch of documents that Landon goes through. He, realized that he realizes that Sophie herself is the last descendant of Jesus Christ. So this is the only place where like a scion really comes in. So grandpa, nude grandpa is part of the bloodline. No, shut it, and I'll tell you. Okay, okay. Uh, she is a descendant of Jesus Christ, and after her family all died in a car crash, Sonier came to get her and pose as her grandfather, oh. but really he was her protector because he was like the grandmaster of the Priory of Sion. He's got to protect the bloodline. So they meet a bunch of other members of the Priory, including Sophie's actual grandmother, I guess. Hmm, I don't know. Or was she Maybe. Like, or was she just Sonier's like... I don't know. Sophie's give, grandmother. Give us a squinch. <laughs> uh, who promises to protect her. Langdon and Sophie part ways. The end. Or is it? Yes. No. Oh. Back at home or somewhere, maybe a hotel or something, <laughs> Langdon is shaving when he nicks himself and sees his blood curving down the sink. And suddenly it hits him. There's a meridian called the Rose Line in Paris. Neath the Rose. <sighs> So he follows the line to the Louvre where this all started and concludes the grail is below the pyramid in Versailles. In Versailles. Kristen, I just got a chill. I bet. He kneels at it, looking down into the pyramid. The camera shoots down through the pyramid below levels, floors and stuff like that to reveal the sarcophagus of Mary Magdalene. God damn it, he was right. But he'll never really know. To what I mean, to what end? What do you mean? I guess you figured out where Mary Magdalene was. Yeah, but, but he doesn't like, have the proof. He he couldn't see the the thing. Oh, the so camera just shows us. Yeah, but who cares? <laughs> I guess my thing is like they found the living mm -hmm. descendant. 
Yeah, but still. Seems bigger. Still want no. Mary Magdalene's no. a big deal. I guess she's. A, I'm not saying she's not a big deal. So I would think that she's she's like the Holy Grail. But then you know, right? Whatever her name was, Sophie is the descendant. Is the descendant, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you're looking for the Holy Grail, it's down there, but you can never see it. Never see it. Yeah, that's a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that sounds uh, complicated. It was really complicated. <laughs> and you didn't like really, it? Really? No, I really didn't like it. It was really long. I, I, yeah, I didn't like it. So there, the Holy Grail and the Scion bloodline. Real quick. Or, yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we are going to move on to you telling us <laughs> yeah. more about the Scion and bloodline in Dogma. But first, we just need to make sure that you know about our Patreon. This is an excellent, excellent, really impactful way to support the show if you like it and also get a ton of stuff back as our thank you to you for doing it. If you go to patreon.com slash gttupod, you can get access to our second podcast Mm -hmm. called The Netherworld Dispatch. It comes out every single Monday and we do cool stuff over there. We like play spooky video games. We check out like the most up-to-date horror news of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, all kind of, William, what would we just do? We just covered the Legend of Zelda series. Mm-hmm. I cherry-picked some of my favorite scary moments throughout the franchise. Some it was of them, awesome. Which are genuinely like really inventive monster designs that are incredibly stressful, bizarre, weird. Yeah. Um, and all of that because I'm, I'm cur- currently obsessed with the new Zelda game that just came out. Uh, so go get that episode right now. It's sitting waiting for you. Patreon.com slash GTTU pod. But I do also want to shout out that because of that Zelda episode, a lot of people who listen to our oh, show right. or watch the show are playing the game as well. And in the Discord, which you also get access to through Patreon, yep. uh, Mags discovered the following. It's amazing. Somebody, uh, a, a character that you can meet and speak to lives in a village <laughs> In the new video game, Legend of Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, and says the words, Guide to the Unknown. Yeah. So I dropped everything, I got my paraglider, and I <laughs> flew to the Goron City where I met Doma, who said, who's talking about mysteries of Hyrule, the kingdom, and says, I'm going to get to the bottom of this great mystery and turn it into an even greater book. Doma's Guide to the Unknown Ooh. is going to fly off the shelves. Time to start practicing my signature. Oh, yeah. Boom. Nintendo. Delightful. We know you've been listening. Yeah. (laughs) We know you've been watching. That's right. And we thank you for the Easter egg. Thank you so much. And I even think that she kind of looks like you, Kristen. Oh, my God. She looks exactly like me. Yep. Doma, Goron City, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom, Guide to the Unknown is in the game. If you mix up the letters in Doma, it spells Kristen. It spells Kristen. Oh, my God. It's been sitting right in front of our faces. The whole time. And wait. What's and I'm not this? even a symbologist. In the deep background, could that be the Fibonacci's, the, wait, the first 10 numbers of pi all out of order and <laughs> the decimal place is not in the right spot? But it's definitely pi. I think so. I think it is. Uh, pretty neat. Very so neat. Uh, go check that out. Yes. Patreon.com slash pod. Other bits of business. We are moving our spinoff podcast, mm-hmm. Ghost Adventures Adventures. Yep. Uh, all of those episodes are now on the Patreon feed. Right now, as you're listening, every original 14 episode run of Ghost Adventures Adventures is on the Patreon feed right this second. Right. And uh, that is significant because we are going to be removing them from the public feeds yep. in about a month. Yes. We're going to close that out. So you've got time if you want to download those episodes and keep exactly. them on some sort of a storage device if you want. you got 30 days. Yeah. By all means, do it. So we're basically just giving you a heads we're up. It's not that it's like yeah. so exciting that 
Oh, it lives here now. It's I like, know. well, it lives. I know I can get it for free right just now. Just a little spring cleaning. Just so you know. Just a little spring cleaning. Yeah. Uh, but uh, maybe uh, maybe there'll be more uh, in that arena in the mm. near future. We've done a whole bunch of episodes on Patreon we of have. Ghost Adventures Adventures since. Yep. With actual Ghost Adventures and other paranormal shows. Yes. So they're yeah. all going to be in one place now. Together. If you like that, then you'll probably like our Patreon. Go dive in. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, themythtraveler.com. Yeah. I've been posting a. Uh, spooky stories this ongoing series every single week it's been fun um i've had this idea of a show called elder things in my head for a long time but i'm now turning it into this like series of short stories where like i i know exactly where it's all driving to but i'm sort of feeling out where Mm -hmm. i feel like taking the story each week it's a really good time yeah go check it out themythtraveler.com if you enjoyed blackwood if you enjoy my writing you can get this uh, sort of spooky adventure story yeah, that's coming awesome. out every single Tuesday over there. And a lot of uh, writing on other topics as well. TheMythTraveler.com. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, all right. Let's talk about the other uh, religious artifact-y story yes. that we're into this week. Dogma. Yes. Kevin Smith's 1999 epic. Mm-hmm. Kristen. William. What is your history with Dogma? I've seen it 8,000 times. Yeah. Um, I bought it on VHS, the English Town Auction, oh. and I used to watch it all the time. Yep, all the yeah. time. Mm-hmm. All the time. Yeah, I haven't seen it in, I guess, like a good while. I should watch it again. I watched but, it Yeah, I watched it for the first time in truly, like, years. Definitely for me, too. Yeah, and uh, I remember really, really liking this movie, and guess what? Mm-hmm. Really liked it. Yeah. I think this is a really, really fun, good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, now, Dogma is uh, a movie that Kevin Smith wanted to write even before he wrote Clerks. At the end of Clerks, it says, Jay and Silent Bob will return in Dogma. Yeah. And then he made Mallrats and then Chasing Amy and then Dogma. He had to like build up to it. And over the course of time, this thing was like a giant Lord of the Rings, uh-huh. modern day, you know, religious epic adventure. Yeah. And then he would pare it down or reshape it, whatever. But the form that it currently is in uh, is is so fun and goofy, but also like shockingly emotional. Yeah, I I always forget that I can get like really emotionally invested in Dogma, mm-hmm. and it was it was no different this time. Yeah, I'm sure. Now this movie is not available anywhere. Oh, it's free on YouTube. Oh, because. This was a Miramax film. Oh, okay. And Harvey Weinstein, real life villain Harvey Weinstein, yeah. holds the keys to the rights. Oh. Kevin Smith has tried to buy the rights to this movie back and been turned down multiple times by be Harvey so Weinstein's crazy. lawyers. Just before the Harvey Weinstein story dropped, Harvey Weinstein personally called Kevin Smith. They'd had a falling out for years at that point. Mm-hmm. Called him and was like, you know, I was thinking about this movie Dogma. Maybe we should get around to making a sequel. Yeah. And Kevin Smith was like, yeah, I... I mean, I would love to. That's, sure. that's interesting. And then a week later, when the headlines hit about Harvey Weinstein, he realized that Harvey Weinstein was probably fishing uh, to see who knew about oh, the story. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Coming out. Yeah, And so yeah, Kevin yeah. Smith has said that he will never uh, work on another release of this movie or anything until Harvey Weinstein is dead. Yeah. Or the rights are back in Kevin Smith's hands. Because if anybody sells this, money goes to Harvey Weinstein. Yeah, understandable. So... I watched this movie on YouTube, not that I necessarily needed to. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but it's largely committed to memory. Yeah. And the reason why I felt that we could pair this with Da Vinci Code again is this concept of The Last Scion. Now, in Da Vinci Code, you revealed that it's actually more of this 
organization that's trying to protect this potential bloodline secret. Right. And surprise at the end, there is a modern descendant. It's similar in Dogma, but slightly inverted. Yeah. Dogma is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Dogma is, uh, here's, here's, here's what the movie is about. It opens with a scene of an old man on the Asbury Park boardwalk. We were just in Asbury Park mm -hmm. last week. It yep. felt like very kind of like, I don't know, it felt very Jersey. I got into Kevin Smith when we moved to New Jersey. Yeah. I don't know. It felt very come home to see this. I hadn't seen it in a long time. Yeah. Uh, and he's attacked by the Stygian triplets. Three teens on rollerblades with hockey sticks. They jump this old man. Uh, they put him into a coma. There's conversation throughout the rest of the movie heard over, you know, news reports on televisions and scenes about whether or not to take this man off life support. Yeah. He's dying. Nobody knows who he is. He's called John Doe Jersey. That's all backdrop. Mm -hmm. We're going to meet uh, uh, some of our main antagonists, Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. Yeah. Together again, peanut butter and jelly. That's right. They are so wonderful together. Oh, yeah. They are playing two fallen angels. Uh, ben Affleck is Bartleby. Matt Damon is Loki. They were kicked out of heaven mm -hmm. like a, a, millions of years ago. Matt Damon used to be the sword of God. He would go around like Old Testament type stuff. Like he would punish the sinners by killing them. Yeah. Setting fire to entire villages. Bloodshed. Mayhem. Loving it. Bartleby was a watcher. He watched humans. He knew everything about them. He studied their sins. And Bartleby and Loki were friends. Bartleby, Ben Affleck, it turns out, had started to develop a fondness for all these humans that he'd been watching. And over the course of many drinks, convinced Loki that killing in the name of God is unjust. That, that simply won't do. Mm -hmm. And so Loki uh, goes to God, uh, quits, lays down his fiery sword, and gives God the finger. Yeah. And they're kicked out of heaven. Sent to the, the earthly purgatory of Wisconsin. Of course. And this is where they've been, lo, these, these many years. <laughs> now, I, I'm talking to you about the similarities between this story and Da Vinci Code. Mm -hmm. But I have a side controversy. Okay. To bring your way. Yes. Dogma came out in 1999. When we first meet Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, they're at an airport. And Bartleby... Ben Affleck is going on and on about how nice it is to watch people at the airport because any of the interpersonal stress they have, any disagreements that people have, the second that people get off the airplane and they see somebody who's picking them up, even if that person they've, they've been fighting with for a long time, it's all gone. Mm -hmm. they, they're excited to see each other. They love each other. They hug each other. They kiss each other. It's nice. He likes that for people. Yeah. 2003, four years after Dogma comes out, Love Actually comes out. And it's all this schmaltz about the airport. You watch your mouth. That's how it opens and shuts. It's all about the airport as a place mouth. where people are happy and love each other. Perhaps Alan Rickman was yes. the conduit between the two. You're absolutely right. He's in both movies. Right. You're right. Stolen. Hmm. Stolen. Anyway. Anyway. Uh, we are now going to uh, discover that Bartleby and Loki... Having been kicked out all this time, somebody sent them a newspaper clipping. There's a cardinal in New Jersey who's opening a church for the centennial or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they're going to bless the archway of the church so that anybody who steps into this church is going to be absolved of their sins instantly. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. Loophole. Loophole. They were kicked out of heaven, but if they walk through that gate, they will get carte blanche to return to heaven. Mm -hmm. So Bartleby and Loki decide to make the long exodus from Wisconsin to New Jersey. 
That's the problem. Yeah. Enter Alan Rickman as the voice of God, the Metatron. Mm -hmm. He visits Bethany Sloan, just an average uh, person living her life. Doing her thing. Doing her thing. Um, uh, she's got a, a tragic backstory. She and her husband wanted to have a kid. She was unable to. He left her. So she's got a trauma in her past. And now here is the voice of God saying, God has picked you personally mm -hmm. to go on this mission to stop these two angels. Why do we have to stop Bartleby and Loki? Because if they go through that arch and end up back in heaven, they will have reversed God's decree. Yeah. And he says, now listen very closely. The entire universe functions on one very basic principle. God is infallible. To prove him wrong would unmake existence. Up would become down. Black would become white. Existence. Dogs and cats living together. In mass hysteria. <laughs> existence would become nothingness. So you must stop them from going through that archway or the world is going to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be aided by a modern, you know... Who's going to aid at her? Oh. Huh. She'll be joined by two prophets. One who will speak at great length, <laughs> even if you don't want him to, and the other who is the, the quiet type. Yeah. It's Jay and Silent Bob of all the, the Kevin Smith movies. Yep. Really, almost all of them. Mm -hmm. And so uh, she uh, wants to resist this. She doesn't believe in it, whatever. At some point, it's very... The whole movie is like very like efficient and fast at setting up all of this stuff and it's super entertaining yeah like there's this like fun 90s kevin smith quentin tarantino over analysis thing where mm -hmm. loki is talking to a nun at the airport and he's talking about the fable of the the walrus and the carpenter yeah they have these like philosophical conversations that are long and like really deep that you would never have with just like a random a person in real right. life but like in reservoir dogs yeah. quentin tarantino's character mr pink is talking about the madonna song like a virgin and really going on and on about what it really means and here matt damon is going like the walrus and the carpenter the carpenter obviously represents jesus and then blah 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 blah, blah so why would we do this why would we do that? Don't you think that all of this is worthless anyway? Yeah. And the nun ends up giving up, yeah. you know, her <laughs> life of dedica dedication to the church. Right. It's like such a cozy 90s notion, this overly ver verbose, yeah. overly analytical, overly intelligent yeah, everyday characters. Mm -hmm. It's so charming. Yeah. It's like a warm blanket. You don't get anything like this. Yeah, right. Like these days. And I, I really distinctly think about it with Kevin Smith mm -hmm. and Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, definitely. And a little bit Kevin Williamson, right? Like just that very 90s. I don't think, well, definitely that 90s thing, but I don't think the specific thing of what you're talking about. Not the specific yeah. over analysis, but right. the, certainly but the, the overly verbose you know well they just have like deep, these yeah vocabulary vocabulary yeah yes. it's crazy the vocabulary is outrageous mm -hmm. in 90s movies and kevin williams and stuff specifically absolutely but so when alan rickman is talking to to bethany she thinks that he's like a home invader yeah and then he unveils his wings and it's like a great effect these gigantic physical wings that yeah. like he can put his hands on his hips and then the wings will sort of droop as if they're shrugging as well. Mm -hmm. It's like I don't know everything about this movie really clicks for me That's but awesome. she still doesn't believe it that all this is happening or that it's real and he goes all right if none of this is convincing you how about tequila? And he basically snaps his fingers and there's a wipe across the screen like Star Wars. Yeah. And we transition into Mexican restaurant. Right. He teleported them. Yeah. And she goes, oh my God, so what are we, in Mexico? And he goes, no, we're actually in the franchise eatery down your street. But that's impressive nonetheless. Mm -hmm. All the angels, all the magical characters have this like put upon 
yeah. worldly weight. I mean, I think to them, it's just like, it's another day at the office. It's kind all of, And it's like kind of annoying that they have to deal with this like big project. Yes. And there's a very simple joke for every magical sort of being here. And I really do think about it like a modern day Lord of the Rings where it's like, and I don't know much about Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. right? But it's like a small hobbit, an unexpected hero yeah. goes on a grand journey and he needs help from a dwarf and a wizard. He needs all these figures who round out this troop, each with their own particular skill. That's what dogma is. Yeah. The Metatron is the voice of God. So he's, he's literally speaks for God because if God speaks, his, his true voice right. is so overpowering to living beings. Your head would explode. Your heart would explode out of yeah. your chest. So he's the voice, the, literally the mouthpiece for God. Mm -hmm. And yet he's kind of put upon. Yeah. And a little depressive. Yeah. That's like some like some big executive's assistant. Yes. Yes, exactly. She's going to be aided by two prophets. Prophets are supposed to be like very all-knowing and can see the future and, and, and scope things out and strategize. But it's Jay and Silent Bob who are two stoner doofuses. Right. So even when they get things wrong, it seems accidental. Yeah. They are idiotic prophets. Yeah. Or it's, when they get it right, it seems accidental. Right. And they get it yeah. right, it feels like it's an accident. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's like a very simple joke, but it really clicks and really, really yeah. works for me. Bethany is attacked by the Stygian triplets. Mm -hmm. And that's when Jay and Silent Bob first come in. They beat up these, you know, hockey playing dorks, which hockey yeah. is a big Kevin Smith trope. So it's all like, just like clicking yeah, in it's, his it's language. All like, right. Yeah. Uh, and they end up uh, agreeing to take Bethany with them back to New Jersey. Mm -hmm. They've come to Illinois because they love the John Hughes movies, uh -huh. which all take place in a fictional town of Shermer, Illinois, which is a fun commentary that Kevin Smith's movies all take place in their own pocket universe of yeah. reality. But now they're going to bring Bethany to New Jersey with them. Uh, but they want to drive her car. Mm -hmm. But they don't know about changing gears. So the car <laughs> breaks down. And then, boom, falling out of the sky comes the unknown until now 13th apostle of Jesus's, Rufus, mm -hmm. played by Chris Rock. And he believes that he was left out of the Bible because he's a black man. Yeah. And so it plays into this Chris Rock comedy but totally. it's also this idea of like he's an apostle but not one you know yeah like it's like it's it's what you expect of of religious figures except something that undercuts it well you know what like well i actually i guess it's your whole point i don't know why i'm saying this like it's a revelation deal but the lord of the ringsiness that you were talking about reminds me of the fact that i get i heard somebody i think just on instagram or something say that like most fantasy books are like some sort of like journey. It's sort mm -hmm. of rare for them to be taking place in just one location. And so I was going to say, yeah, it's very much a journey, but that's your whole point. No, it's 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 just interesting to see this yeah. like cuz it it really does play like a modern epic. Mm -hmm. But it also does But they go to so they're they're literally going on a journey. Yes. Like they're going from location to location yep. to like get to a place. You can picture that Indiana Jones red line yep. across the globe going from Wisconsin to New Jersey and then Bethany and Jane Silent and Bob and Rufus going from Illinois to New Jersey. They're all going to converge at this final yeah. destination and have a battle. Yeah. It's just it's just so it's shockingly well handled, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, is I think one of my big points is that it re really works for me. Yeah. But it similarly also still clicks on this 90s hangout stoner comedy thing. Yeah, where definitely. like there are a shocking number of scenes in this movie, which are people sitting around a table in an eatery. Uh -huh. They're in a diner. They're in one bar. They go to, I think, at least three bars. Yeah. They go in the dining car of a train. Like uh -huh. it's a lot of like just going places where you could eat food or drink. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is interesting and weird and almost repetitive like a fancy restaurant but 
like, I don't know. It's just part of this, like, sometimes you just want to see the characters sit down and have an interesting conversation. Yeah, Sometimes totally. it doesn't even necessarily move the plot forward, but you're learning about these people mm-hmm. and hearing about this, like, millennia of these magical creatures from heaven who've been cast down on earth and what have they been doing down here? Right. How have they evolved with the times? So like one of the big things, one of the other like magical people they come across is Salma Hayek Mm -hmm. who is working as a stripper in like the middle of nowhere. Yeah. And uh, she is uh, dancing, trying to get Jane Silent Bob to outbid this gang that's also paying a bunch of money. And so every time she looks their way, they bid more. Mm-hmm. And you end up realizing that she is a muse from heaven named Serendipity. A muse is somebody who gives you good ideas. Right. So she essentially was convincing these guys to pay more and more and more, which is what a stripper would do anyway. But she happens to have a magical skill. Yeah. She uh, claims that she is single-handedly responsible for 19 of the top 20 grossing films of all time. Not Home Alone. Somebody sold their soul to Satan for that. Another John Hughes movie. True. Mm. So uh, it turns out that Serendipity quit working in heaven so that she could come down and use some of her good ideas for herself. But you got writer's block. Mm-hmm. Another simple joke, bordering on too simple. Yeah. Or like probably maybe it needs another layer or something. But she does sort of hit it with this idea of like, that's, you know, God's sense of humor is I have all these ideas for you everyone. You plans and God laughs. Sure. I have all these good ideas, but they're all for everyone else. I mm-hmm. don't get to have any of my own good ideas. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, kind of interesting. But again, doesn't fuel the plot, mm-hmm. but does flesh out a universe of this stuff happening. Right. Which is fun. Yeah. So why is all of this happening to uh, begin with? Maybe Satan himself uh, is trying to get Bartleby and Loki to, to right? You would think of like if they're going against God. Yeah. You know, maybe uh, Lucifer is using Bartleby and Loki to unmake the world or something. Mm-hmm. But no, Lucifer doesn't want the world to not exist. Right. So who's doing this? Well, Jason Lee mm-hmm. from Mallrats plays Asriel, a demon and he uh, seems like he's in charge of the Stygian triplets, the three hockey-playing bad guys. And he's, you know, sending them after Bethany, and they fail. And then he ultimately uh, is sending a- another big henchman, the Golgothan. The Golgothan. And this thing is awesome. Yeah, totally. It's stupid because it's a joke. Yeah. But it's actually sort of horrifically Yeah, it's a cool, crazy sweet. monster. The Golgothan is a big, literal demon monster that Asriel sends after everybody at one of the moments where they're hanging out in a bar. Yeah. It pops up out of the toilet because the Golgothan is a shit demon. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is an excremental, <laughs> right. as Rufus says, I think, or mm-hmm. serendipity, I'm not sure. But so, essentially, on Skull Hill, where criminals were crucified and hung, this is where Jesus died as well, when people die, they lose bowel control. All of the poop on Skull Mountain or whatever, Skull Hill, ended up becoming this monster, yeah. the Golgothan. And so Asriel sends the Golgothan after them. And it's such like a 90s Kevin Smith, like there should be a big fight scene here. And it's all this like the gang attacks the Golgothan and then off screen he dispatches all of them while everybody looks around. You're just uh-huh. holding on all the other characters who are like looking up in the corner and then looking down on the ground as sound effects, you know, Make the case yeah. to you that the Golgothan is dispatching all of them. And then it just can lumber slowly after them. It's right. a big poop monster costume. Uh, and they're hiding behind the bar. And, you know, Serendipity is explaining all the lore behind the Golgothan, which is just superfluous but fun. Yeah. 
And then uh, Silent Bob, the prophet, has the perfect weapon. He stands up and with one little toot, mm-hmm. one little <laughs> of a spray, <laughs> he, uh, he, he poofs a spray bottle in the Golgothan's face and it keels over. Like a glade. Like a glade. Like a glade. It's a fart spray. Yeah. Because he travels with Jay uh-huh. all the time and Jay <laughs> farts constantly. Yeah. So the stupidest possible solution to this problem. But it works and it's funny. You never see the Golgothan again. Yeah. <laughs> it's like done. There's a drop mention that serendipity is going to interrogate him. I'm curious oh, to see yeah, what that would right. look like. Yeah, I, I yeah. don't know how that would go, yeah. but she does show up at well, the I end of the movie can... with information about what's going on. So I guess she got information out of the shit demon. Yeah, yeah. Which is weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the standout scenes uh, as Bartleby and Loki are traveling the country uh, is that uh, they stop at the headquarters for uh, Mubi, Mubi Enterprises. Mubi is a character. He's like a, a Mickey Mouse He's a golden cow, a golden calf, mm-hmm. wearing, you know, uh, big puffy white gloves and cute shorts. He's exactly Mickey Mouse. Yeah. And uh, they stop at the headquarters and uh, they have some big, you know, grandiose scene while, where Bartleby explains that every single person on the board is a sinner, mm-hmm. except for one woman in the corner who's, who's innocent. But everybody else is, is horrible. And here are all the horrific things that they've done. Right. And now here comes Loki. He's been carving uh, a, a voodoo doll out of the CEO, mm-hmm. out of an out of an onion, a voodoo doll of the CEO. Yeah, and he uh, uh, walks up and explains that they all deserve uh, to suffer, and and he goes, uh, uh, I don't know. He's like, I, maybe if I believed in voodoo enough, this really would hurt you. Mm-hmm. He puts the voodoo doll down on the table and waves his hand over it, and then he gets the guy all worked up. And he screams, he smashes the onion, nothing happens. He goes, see, I don't, I don't believe in voodoo. Yeah. He leaves and he goes, but I do believe in this. And he shoots them all mm-hmm. with a gun. Yeah. And blood splatters all over the place because Mubi is a company all about worshiping a golden calf. Right. Which was this old, like, you know, Ten Commandments idea. Yeah, that, like that false w- idolatry. False idolatry. So it's like this weird Old Testament stuff is in this movie yeah. too. And then Mubi itself became like where the clerks work and clerks too and just yeah, became yeah. a joke for joke's sake, mm-hmm. later in Kevin Smith movies. And they've had movies pop-up shops in L.A. Yeah. Um, but it was here as a, a, a metaphor about idolatry and, and mascots and commercialism. And everyone's killed except for the woman who's an innocent. Mm-hmm. And Loki offers her some gum. Uh, but he had sneezed earlier and she didn't say bless you. Yeah. So he pulls, he pulls the gun on her until Ben Affleck pulls him away. And he goes, you're getting off light. Right. Which is a good joke. <laughs> it is a good joke. It's a good joke. Um, Asriel tells them to, uh, to travel incognito, uh, stop killing people. You're being too on the radar. We want to get you through that gate mm-hmm. bit by bit. We're realizing this is all definitely Asriel's yeah, yeah. doing, but why? Right. Ultimately, Asriel is going to have to roll up his sleeves and go after the, the traveling crew himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but before that can happen, Bartleby and Loki meet everybody on a train. Yep. Bartleby and Bethany have a moment, a quiet moment, where they each talk about religion and believing in God and when they stopped believing. Mm -hmm. And this is where it's bizarrely emotional. I was an altar boy. Yeah. And like, like we were raised like Catholic or Christian or whatever we were. Catholic. And uh, like I did want to believe in in religion for a, a big portion of my life. Mm-hmm. And hearing Bethany describe like the pain that she's been in in her life and realizing that maybe nobody's listening and how empty and how alone that can feel mm-hmm. is it, very relatable. Yeah. And then Bartleby is so odd because he's like – I kept talking and then at a certain point I felt like God wasn't listening anymore. But from Bartleby's perspective, it's very 
specifically yeah, literal. Yeah, I would say it's literal. Which is such an interesting conversation for those characters to have. Mm-hmm. But then Rufus, the 13th Apostle, recognizes them and a fight breaks out. Yeah. During which a bizarre joke happens. Silent Bob throws them off the train. And Ben Affleck improvised the line when, <laughs> when Silent Bob grabs Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck looks over his shoulder and sees Silent Bob and goes, Shuler Bob, I'll get you for this, Shuler Bob, when he's thrown off the train. Yeah. In German, Schuler means silent. Uh-huh. I think somebody so somebody brought up that translation on the set or something, and then Ben Affleck started to riff on this idea that maybe Silent Bob has recurred in Bartleby's past. Right, right. <laughs> like it was like <laughs> persistent. They battled over many lifetimes of Silent Bobs in different locations. Exactly. So yeah. the modern day Silent Bob is just the latest in a long line of quiet Bobs. Yeah. And there was one in Germany, you know, Schuler a Bob. few hundred years ago, Schuler Bob. Yeah. Just so stupid. <laughs> I know, it's really funny though. Uh, but now the worm starts to turn. Lur- Loki has always been fire and brimstone. He punishes while Bartleby has a soft spot. But talking to Bethany makes him realize, like, she, yeah, she doesn't believe in God. They mm-hmm. don't believe in any of this stuff. Why does God have patience for humanity's disbelief in him when he is so punishing to us? Why were we cast out without any patience, without any grace? And he loves these, like, idiot creatures that he made here on Earth. Mm-hmm. And so he essentially has this heel turn where he decides, like, they do deserve to die. Meanwhile, Loki is having the opposite turn. He met Jane Silent Bob. He doesn't like the idea that people are trying to stop them from going through the gate. He's sort of trying to be like, wait, I just wanted to go home. I don't don't really know what this all means for existence. Yeah. I never expected it to get this big. Bartleby and Loki start to switch places. And it's at another big, like, emotional Mm -hmm. speech in a parking garage where Ben Affleck is, like, slamming Matt Damon up against a, a support beam. And like, you know, it, it's so well written and so well yeah. acted. Like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are absolutely terrific because yeah. they're, they're funny and they're goofy and they're bros and they're buds, but they can pull off this like anger and sadness. Mm-hmm. And these roles of fallen angels could just be so nothing or so silly, but they actually end up having weight in this movie in a really surprising way. Yeah. Asriel now has had to try to stall everybody himself. And so in a bar, he's going to basically keep everybody captive, giving Bartleby and Loki just enough time to go through the archway. Everybody's in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Asriel reveals why. Asriel used to live in heaven. And he was cast out as well for not fighting in the war against Lucifer. When Lucifer was cast out, God first punished everybody who had rebelled against him and then turned on everybody who had, had abstained from fighting. And... Asriel was one of the people who just sort of sat on the sidelines, so he was cast off. Uh, but he used to be a muse, like serendipity. Mm-hmm. He is a creature who gives people ideas. And the whole movie started with him sending a newspaper article to Bartleby and Loki in Wisconsin that, hey, maybe if you go through this gate, you can get back into heaven. Yeah, that's super fun. Which is awesome. Yeah, like, totally. It plays to his identity as a fallen angel. What he does is give people ideas. Yeah. And ultimately, he wants to unmake the world because he's been stuck in hell for millennia. And he says he'd rather not exist 
than ever go back down there again. Mm -hmm. Which itself is like, who's not afraid of the concept of hell, whether or not you you believe in it? Like, it sounds terrible. Supposed to be the worst of the worst. Yeah. There's a, a cut The scene. ragged clothing <laughs> and the heat. The My God, the heat. The fashion alone, yeah. Kristen. Uh, I, I used to love the early days of DVDs mm -hmm. and Kevin Smith used to go crazy on I DVDs. I know. It was awesome. He had like every deleted scene. He would record intros for every deleted scene to give context of yeah. why they were deleted and what they meant. And there's a big deleted scene here that like was cut for budget, but would have been so cool where he, Asriel, is able to hold his hand over Bethany's eyes and show her what heaven is like mm -hmm. and essentially make the case this is what heaven is. You couldn't stomach it for one second of me showing it to you. Yeah. Imagine being there forever. I'd rather not exist. Hence, let them go through the gate. Wait, heaven or hell? Hell. I'm okay. sorry, hell. Yeah. Hell is so horrible. Mm -hmm. Just look at this one, you know, vision. But yeah. they didn't have the budget to shoot this vision of hell. Yeah. So that moment was cut. But it's such a cool idea. That Just is like a cool seeing idea. seeing flash images of, of hell. Yeah. And being like so, you know, physiologically repelled by it. Yeah. Uh, now. Bethany was set out on this mission by Metatron. Why? He said that God personally wanted to see her. But when she starts to rebel and starts to lose faith, he reveals that God can't hear her at all. God is missing and has been for quite some time. So how could anybody have wanted Bethany specifically to go right. on this mission? And here's the connection to the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> Albeit loose, right? Certainly. Jesus never had children in dogma. But he did have brothers and sisters. And Metatron's explanation is like, yeah, Jesus is said to have been, you know, conceived from a virgin birth. Joseph was not his father. Mary had never had sex before. But they were still married. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they ended up having kids yeah. after that. So Jesus has half brothers and half sisters out there and they had kids. And so Bethany is the great, 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 great grandniece of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And she is here to shoulder the burden of taking care of the world. And there's another great emotional scene between her and uh, the Metatron, Alan Rickman, about, you know, isn't that too big a burden to place on somebody? And he's like, I had to say this to Jesus. And he thought the same thing. Yeah. And it's like, I don't believe in this anymore. But like in, in concept, all of this is, like just hits in such an interesting way. Yeah. So she has divine bloodline. She is the priori of Scion. Uh, or whatever. I think she's the scion. She is the last scion. Yeah. Yes. So Robert Langdon would be trying to find her. Yes. Yes. Well, he didn't, he wasn't even trying to find the scion. Well, whatever. Yeah. He would stumble across her. <laughs> right. And then just kind of be like, huh, okay. Huh. Well, yeah. Very well then. So she's able to bless water and turn it into holy water and they, they end up melting the Stygian triplets in the water. <laughs> uh, they steal uh, the Cardinals uh, golf clubs. Uh, it turns out that he blessed his own golf clubs to improve his golf score. Wouldn't you? So Silent Bob swings a driver into Asriel's chest and explodes him and he dies. <laughs> and we get to the grand finale. Everybody converges at the church where Loki's wings have been cut off. And we learn that when an angel's wings are cut off, they literally become human. Yeah. Bartleby has gone completely insane and is just killing people at the church. He he had started out by punishing sinners and then just started taking to anybody who would come by. He would sweep them up off the street, fly way high up, and just drop them. He's lost his Bartles. He's lost his Bartles. And so we get these epic shots of Ben Affleck floating <laughs> down in front of a, of a giant cathedral with yeah, his right. angel wings <laughs> and his angel armor, looking all majestic and proud. Yeah. 
and Bart and Loki finally steps up to Bartleby. You're doing this all wrong. You once were squeamish over when I used to punish the sinners, and now look at what's become of you. And so he's going to stop Bartleby. Except Bartleby says, you lost the faith, and you lost your wings, which means you're human, mm-hmm. which means you have a shorter lifespan. And he stabs him in the side with a knife. Bartleby kills Loki, his old friend Brutal. from millennia. Brutal. And uh, now he's going to run through the gates. Jason Mewes blows his wings off with an Uzi, so he's human now, which is stupid. Of Bethany course. realizes that John Doe Jersey, that guy who was jumped at the beginning of the movie, mm-hmm. and they're debating whether or not to take him off life support, he's nearby. That's God right. in a human body. Oh my God. The reason God's been missing, Kristen, he likes to play skee ball. And so he comes down to the Asbury Park boardwalk alone. Of course, who wouldn't deduce this? Got jumped by the Stygian triplets, put into a coma, which is why he's been out of the scene this entire movie. Yep. But Bethany's going to go take this old man off life support, and that's the win? Right. Which is like a weird... I also know how we get here. I it's Yeah, I know. It's very strange. Yeah. But so when they take the old man off life support, it's intercut with Ben Affleck running into the church. And the old man dies and light rays shoot out of his body, even puncturing Bethany's body herself Mm. as Ben Affleck rips the doors open. But he's too late. God has died, ascended back to heaven and come back down to stop Bartleby at the entrance to the church. And God is none other than Alanis Morissette. That's right. There's this whole debate in the movie of is God a man or a woman? Yeah. Well, here's Alanis Morissette. Yep. And uh, she Case is closed. wearing a dress and holding flowers and, and being very like, she can't speak. She's very peaceful. Very peaceful. Right? Yeah. But she is looking into Bartleby's eyes like a parent who's mm-hmm. like, I know, like you blew it. Yeah. You screwed up. And Ben Affleck, again, I, I give him a lot of credit. He's covered in blood and he's been being crazy and murdering people. He sees God and he starts crying mm-hmm. and he says, I'm sorry. Yeah. And she hugs him. And then uh, gives Metatron a nod and he urges everybody to cover their ears. We're going to hear the true voice of God. Yeah. And you would think that this would maybe be like her like saying like, <laughs> I forgive you. But yeah. his head explodes. She opens her mouth and roars like Godzilla and the whole frame starts shaking. By the way, the whole street is covered in dead bodies and mm-hmm. blood and gore and mayhem. And Bartleby's head explodes and his chest explodes. <laughs> and then Jason Mewes goes, why would you guys hug my head? Because <laughs> they covered his ears. Oh. <laughs> And then he's like, who's this? Why isn't she talking? And then uh, I think she gives him a kiss on the nose or something. And he falls down like Bugs Bunny. Uh, Smitten. Meanwhile, Silent Bob comes in carrying the last scion, Bethany's dead body. Mm -hmm. Only for Alanis Morissette to wave her hands over the wounds and restore her life. And Kristen. William. Metatron says, we're going to need you again down the road, Bethany. And she goes, I know, because I'm the last scion. And he goes, well, you were. But now this oh, is the last time. Oh, that's ion. right. She's pregnant. That's right. Alanis Morissette is that's playing, so nice. sort of like rolling around in the grass and smelling flowers <laughs> and stuff. And the movie ends with this sort of like restoration of yeah. Bethany's faith and like the universe is set right and an right. evil plan is foiled and all of our characters have had something interesting to do and say and... It's like a third book of the Bible, like a modern testament of the Bible or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we cut to black. Yeah. And it's surprisingly, again, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to shock you by saying that I enjoyed it. Right. But I, I, you know, it had been a long time. Yeah, I want to watch it again now. It was was good. Yeah. It was a good movie, but it is all around this like MacGuffin notion 
that the blood of Christ lingers today. And I guess this is a real world belief that is is out there or has been posited in, you know, literature circles, like uh, intellectual circles. I guess. I don't know. I haven't heard of it outside of these things. Yeah. And a lawsuit around Dan Brown's book. And yeah, I did poke around and there were people that are like, did Dan Brown take the idea of a living current descendant of Christ from Dogma or this 1982 book, which yeah. more like put a finer point on it. Right, but just but a few years prior, yeah. Kevin Smith did this. And then four years later, Da Vinci Code comes out. But it sounds like it's an ex- like we were just saying, it sounds like it's just an existing concept independent of these things that recorded it. But a, a pretty small concept. Yeah. Like there was a very small pool of people who were talking about this before Dan Brown. Yeah, yeah. Right? Even Kevin Smith, you could say that Dogma cribs from that 1982 concept. I wouldn't even call it cribbing. I would just call it like this is a concept is and a concept I heard about there. it and I think it's interesting. So True. I'm going to write this thing. True. Yes. Yeah. But the, the adventuring around the modern, mm-hmm. the modern descendant of yeah. Christ, right? Like you learn at the end of the Da Vinci Code that she's the modern descendant. You didn't know. But right. That does mean the whole time. Yeah. Uh, uh, Tom Hanks has been. On. Is that her? Yeah. So, yeah, they've been going on this entire adventure together. Yeah. Not knowing that she was the last scion. And right. that's what Bethany was doing a few years prior. Totally. Yeah. Fantastic. And Kevin this, Smith yeah. came out later and was like the the person cast as Bethany. He's like, I hated working with her. I know. <laughs> she was miserable to work with. And uh, Janine Garofalo had a cameo. Mm-hmm. I wish I'd cast Janine Garofalo. Oh, I, did. I love Janine Garofalo. Uh, she's wonderful. Yeah. But so he has talked about a sequel off and on. Sometimes he said, no, he absolutely doesn't. Sometimes he says he does. I watched it again and I thought, I, I think somebody, if somebody gave him a budget and if he yeah. really had something more to say in this world, like it was fun. It, yeah. It's like, to me, it's less of a religious thing at all and more of just sort of like a, a metaphorical epic about people's feelings. Yeah, right. <laughs> it was good. Totally. So there you go. Oh, there you go. So. Globe trotting, trotting adventures. <laughs> what are we going to call this? Uh, I'm just going to call it the Da Vinci Code and Dogma. Great. Easy. Right? Yes. Whatever. I know this is a weird one. This is, but this is technically, this is all like in the, it's looser, but it is in the realm of like. No, it totally does work. It's just like, you really have to, it's hard to explain. Magical mythology. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, it, it's religious mythology, which gives it its own completely different flavor. Right. Right. But it is folklore Mm -hmm. itself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. So we hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for hanging out with us. We're going to see you again real soon. As we said before, you can go to patreon.com slash pod if you want double the show. It comes out every Monday. You can go to themythtraveler.com to get on board with the cool stuff that Will has been writing Thank and you. emailing out there. It's really, really awesome. Yeah, sign up too. There's a there's a free sign up or a paid sign up, whatever works best for you, but that mm-hmm. way you'll be in the loop whenever I'm releasing stuff. Yeah. Um, and follow at GTTU pod on all social media, please follow at chillin' Kristen, mm-hmm. uh, again, Patreon, uh, the ghost adventure stuff has shifted over there. I'm hearing murmurings. I'm hearing some sort of a ghost bro screaming in the back of my mind. We do yeah. have shows that come out every Monday. I wonder what's going on. Hmm. Um, and, uh, we'll be back next week yes. for more guide to the unknown talking about more, uh, trippy, mythological, spooky, magical, who knows yeah. stuff. But until that time comes, we must travel. Back to the netherworld, go we. Finn in the chat says, uh, sounds like Saw took inspiration 
of <laughs> with God ah, being unconscious nearby the whole time. Finn, I think you're absolutely right. Jigsaw is God. Uh huh. Boy, my God, everything's just plagiarizing from everything else. It's disgusting. Ugh. 